The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing the firing of Montreal Alouettes head coach, Kahari Jones. The Edmonton Elks trading quarterback Nick Arbuckle to the Ottawa Red Blacks. Canadian quarterback Trey Ford missing up to a month due to injury. Matt Nichols confirming his retirement publicly. And John Ryan signing with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. But first... Saskatchewan Rough Riders defensive tackle Garrett Marino hit Jeremiah Masoli illegally in his team's Week 5 win over the Ottawa Red Blacks and celebrated following his ejection from the game, flexing his arms and blowing kisses to the crowd. Masoli will miss at least the next 10 to 12 weeks with injury, while Marino has been suspended for a total of four games, two for the hit on the veteran QB, one for uttering racial language towards number eight, and one for an illegal hit on offensive tackle Dino Boyd. Craig Dickinson acknowledged the hit was illegal and expressed his disappointment in Marino's subsequent celebration, though he repeatedly declared Marino is not a racist. Red Blacks receiver Nate Behar ripped Marino in an interview with TSN, while Masoli released a statement on Tuesday saying, quote, it's sad that the hate and racist attitudes and racial insults are going to be punished with a slap on the wrist, close quote. Marino issued an apology through the riders on Wednesday afternoon and stated that he will not appeal the four-game suspension. This situation has become a complete mess, fellas. What do we make of it? I've got a lot to say about this. Uh, First of all, I I don't think I need to justify my take on how disgusting what Garrett Marino did going after Dino Boy's knee knee was completely gutless. Uh, The way in which he attacked Jeremiah Masoli with a clear intent to injure. I I have a lot of respect for Craig Dickinson. The fact that he denied that that Marino was trying to hurt Jeremiah Masoli is laughable and ridiculous. That's obviously what the intent was. There's no other reason to twist a knee like that as you're bringing a guy down. And we also have, this wasn't a first incident, right? Garrett Marino has been in this league for 12 games. He's been, he's been ejected twice and fine. I think it was three times. And whether it's Trevor Harris, Zach Kolaris, any other quarterbacks, 
there's clearly chatter in the CFL's fraternity about him doing this to other passers in the league. That's not my opinion. That's their opinion. Trevor Harris said he has two clips. He said this on Natea J's podcast. He has two clips of Garrett Marino going at his knees, which have not yet fully recovered. The race, the race issue is a separate thing. And first of all, I'm not going to sit here and say that Garrett Marino is or is not racist because frankly, I think that's a, a part of a bigger discussion. I don't know Garrett Marino as a person, uh, but the fact that he used racial language on the field was accused of it publicly, did not deny it either personally or through his team. And then the CFL confirmed it through their investigation on Monday. And then we had to wait two more days for this half-hearted apology that was clearly written by a team PR person and not by Marino himself. And then he goes in in the apology. It says he's not going to address this again. That to me is a joke. Don't get me wrong. The apology is better late than never. But to me, it doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot when it's four days after the fact and it doesn't seem at all, to me at least, like Marino's sorry that this happened. It seems like he's sorry he got caught. And and to me, this is a black mark on the entire Riders organization. This is an embarrassment. And it's unfortunate the timing. First of all, it's, it's unfortunate that Jeremiah Mazzoli was victimized in all this. Secondly, it's unfortunate that the timing has completely taken away the spotlight on the event that you guys are out east to, to watch this week, which is, of course, Touchdown Atlantic, the first game the CFL's had out there in three years, which is supposed to be building momentum for future expansion. So shame on the riders and especially shame on Garrett Marino. This was disgusting. It was handled poorly after the fact. And frankly, I don't think Garrett Marino should be playing in the CFL again ever. That's just my opinion. You're absolutely right, Hodge. What you hammer home there is there's been a complete lack of accountability throughout this entire process. And yes, Garrett Marino has now just recently put out a statement, you know, acknowledging wrongdoing and saying he won't appeal this suspension. But until you have the cojones to sit in front of the media and address your actions to be held accountable for it. I don't care what you say in a written statement to me that shows absolutely nothing. I don't know who wrote that as you alluded to, whether it was Marino himself, whether he even gave it a second thought. And I've seen nothing from the player personally to indicate that he has any remorse whatsoever for his actions. Cause he certainly hasn't had remorse for his actions in the past, which had you know one thing gone slightly differently, we'd be having this conversation about Garrett Marino in a different game, in a different season, potentially multiple times, right? This is a pattern of behavior. And quite frankly, in all my time watching the CFL, I've seen some dirty hits. I've seen some illegal plays. I'm not sure I've quite seen plays like what Garrett Marino did in that game. Not just the hit on Jeremiah Mazzoli, but as a former offensive lineman myself, what he tried to do to Dino Boyd was absolutely horrifying. It's a it's a worst nightmare scenario of vulnerable offensive lineman who could well have been engaged with a blocker at that point, coming in with no intent to do anything on that play other than to take out an opponent's knees to injure him. There is no football explanation, even on the Mazzoli hit, right? It's illegally timed, illegally placed, but a defensive lineman Hitting a quarterback, if it's done properly, is legal. There is no legal explanation for what he tried to do to Dino Boyd, except an explicit intent to injure. And for that, he needs to be held accountable because this isn't just 
a legal play that happens in the course of the game, right? We're talking about intent here and a guy who's going out onto the field with intention to end other people's seasons, to end careers potentially. And when you've got people in the CFL, I mean, they're not making a whole heck of a lot of money here, right? They rely on these salaries to have someone on the field who can take that away, take away 12 weeks of game checks from Jeremiah Mazzoli. That's just atrocious. And quite frankly, I don't know if the league could have done more than a four game suspension based on the precedent, but it sure feels like they should have handed down more. There's no guarantee that Masoli comes back this season either. I feel like that's what some people are thinking out 10 to 12 weeks and he'll be back on the field. That's a possibility, certainly. But how can that affect Masoli long term for not only just his football career, but just him as a human being and a father and a husband and all the things that he is away from football? I think oftentimes we look at just the football field and, yeah, it was bad and it's going to hurt him there. But you sort of alluded to it, JC. How does this hurt Masoli's earning potential in the future, to get his next contract down the road, potentially. From Marino's standpoint, Hodge, I thought you made a great point in terms of the written statement coming out, because literally what goes on for the uninitiated behind the scenes is that every single word of that statement is going to be looked at by multiple members, in this case, of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders organization until they feel like it's good enough, in their mind, to put out. So this is nothing even close to the same as putting yourself in front of the media and answering all of the questions that essentially fans from both teams and all around the league want you to answer. So you can say that you're not going to talk about this again, but you darn well better understand that you're going to be asked about it and you need to address it publicly, not in a written form that you can control. In my mind, that is poor form. I think the Rough Riders should make him available to show that not only he, but the organization is accountable for the actions of their players that put on the green and white, that green and white that they love to see packed in their stadium and all around Rider Nation when they're on the road as well, JC. We saw a couple of them already in Halifax to support the team when they play in Wolfville on Saturday, they need to show that that means something, the privilege that it is to be a professional athlete, to put that green and white on, that you need to own up for your actions and not just have Craig Dickinson have to take all the heat because he has had to do that. He has answered so many questions about it. And yeah, at times he certainly has not looked good, but I don't think it's fair that Marino can just say in a statement that he's never going to address it again. It's going to happen. You're going to be asked about it and let's see how you bounce back from it. But more importantly, let's see how different you are as a player the next time you step on the field, because as a former Canadian university quarterback, watching that play where it's so clear to me, and I hate judging intent, but that his pad level where his helmet is are geared right toward Masoli's knee it's in a retaliatory nature in my mind he was upset on what happened on a previous play and some of the beaking that was going on and the score line was clearly in Saskatchewan's favor and there was no reason to go low whatsoever and I've had some people say to me different scenario in a way but Johnny Manziel has been banned 
from the CFL, all right, essentially for missing some meetings. Now, we came in with domestic violence allegations and went through a thorough process, according to the league, to be allowed to play in the CFL. But let's look at that as somewhat of a comparative example, that Manziel's been barred for missing meetings. Marino's a multiple offender, ejected from two games, fined multiple times, and he's still allowed to earn a living, while Masoli's future living could be in doubt based on this injury. Well, and you touched on the retaliatory nature of the of the of the hit, and I saw Ryder fans, you know, I because I, I I was the first one I believe who put out video of his hit on Dino Boyd that took place six plays before the hit on on Masoli. I don't know how many views it's got now, but but it got I think it was thirty thousand views in the first couple of days, and I got so many messages from Ryder fans excusing the hit because of what Dino Boyd did to Pete Robertson. And I think, yes, it's fair that Dino Boyd, you know, took took an unnecessary roughness penalty, hit Dino or hit uh, Pete Robertson after the fact. And that play should have been penalized. It was penalized. And I imagine Boyd's going to get a fine. But to me, what Boyd did is he, he sped through a 60 zone going 80. You know, is it right? Of course not. Is it dangerous? Yes. But is it the worst thing in the world that you can do? The answer is no. And then Garrett Marino blasted through at 120 while texting on his phone. Like, it's not comparable. And the fact that that Dino Boy took a cheap shot is not justification for taking a cheap shot the other way. Even if all Marino had done was the equivalent, the the opposite way. At that point, you got to trust CFL, uh, uh, the discipline committee. You have you have to trust that the league is going to get this right. So I don't buy the retaliation angle at all as being any type of justification. Anybody who says that should give their heads a shake. And the other thing I'll say, and you touched on it, both of you, with with Garrett Marino not speaking to the media about this. Let's remember. Andrew Harris with the PED uh, uh, positive test in Winnipeg in 2019, he spoke to the media. That was obviously very difficult for him to do, but he faced those questions and he answered them. 2021, AC Leonard, same thing. When he wasn't able to provide a urine sample and was hit with the positive PED uh, two-game suspension, he sat in front of the media and answered those questions. Kenny Lawler in Winnipeg after he was charged with the DUI. He sat in front of the media and answered those questions. And the fact that Garrett Marino is not willing to do this tells me two things. One, it's gutless from him and his organization. And two, if the writers aren't going to let him talk to the media, it's obviously because they don't trust what he's going to say. And if you don't trust what a player is going to say, I think that tells you everything that you need to know about what could come out of his mouth. Is he actually sorry? Well, if he's not willing to say it himself, but he's going to rely on the team's PR department to say it, I don't really have any reason to buy the fact that he's actually sorry or that he's actually going to change. I'm glad that he's sitting up four games. Hopefully the player he comes out on the other side of this suspension as does not resemble the player who he was before the suspension. And let's also say this as well. Garrett Marino, full credit to him, is a heck of a football player, and that's why he's still on the Riders. They're hosting the Great Cup this season. They know that they need to be in that game and win that game to keep their fans happy. That's why Garrett Marino, at the end of the day, is on the team. It's because he can help them win games. We all know that's true. Uh, I just wish there was more honesty and transparency about it. Yeah, is the guy a saint? No. In fact, he's not even going to publicly apologize himself, but he's a great player. We want to win the Great Cup. That's why he's here. Disappointing. I think to your point, Hodge, the reason why the riders don't feel comfortable putting him in front of the media isn't necessarily from the hit. It's from the one-game suspension aspect for his racial comments 
towards Mazzoli. And I don't necessarily think, especially from the comments we've seen from Craig Dickinson this week, which have been extremely disappointing in, in my mind, that there is actually an acknowledgement, whatever was written in that statement aside, from the player, from the team, that whatever language was said was inappropriate, right? We don't know what was actually said. That information has not been shared by Mazzoli or by the league. So we can't necessarily make an assessment on this, but I think we have a bit of a problem in society when we have these allegations of racism that come up from time to time and are the initial response of whoever it is, who's been accused is to immediately withdraw and defend themselves and, and people around them like Craig Dickinson come and say, no, no, Garrett Marino is not a racist. That's not the person that I know because of X, Y, and Z reason that are completely irrelevant to the situation, like the fact that he has a long-term girlfriend who is black. That has no relevance to what was said on the field. And I think part of it's a societal issue, right? When we, we hear the term racism, we think immediately awful person, irredeemable. It's one of the worst things you can call someone in the modern age. But it's also something that's deeply built into our society, right? And we may not always be aware of the things we say and their cultural meanings or, or their ramifications or, or the reasons why they might be racist or why someone might feel impacted by them. And so people are inevitably going to make these mistakes, whether intentionally or Marino just thought he was saying something you know, snarky in the moment, didn't realize what the implication would be. In either scenario, there has to be both on his part, the ability to come forward and say what I did was wrong, right? And I'm going to learn from it. And whether I had that intention or not, the impact of my words matters far more than my intent. But there also has to be an acknowledgement from us that when people say that, when they come forward and they're willing to admit that they've been wrong and try and change, Marino hasn't done that at this stage, but if he were to, we need to also be open to that as well. And I think sometimes this societal discourse can be rather fractured on this particular issue, but we all need to be able to acknowledge and have the the courage and the accountability when we do something like that, when we are guilty of whether it's a minor or a major infraction in that regard, to be able to take responsibility and work to get better. Right now, I don't have any confidence that Garrett Marino is doing that, and I don't have any confidence that the riders are encouraging him to go about that path. I felt like Winnipeg Blue Bombers head coach Michael Shea said it well. You had a battle of the undefeateds at BC Place between the Lions and Blue Bombers a week ago that was hyped up, that was the highest-rated television game of the week on TSN. Then the Bombers win, and that sets up a battle of the undefeateds at IG Field against the Stampeders. And as O'Shea said, we're talking about this crap, like it has taken over to another level and arguably is the biggest storyline above and beyond Canadian quarterback Nathan Rourke starting and Canadian quarterback Trey Ford becoming just a second black Canadian quarterback ever to start in the CFL this season. Those were two of the early season storylines that dominated, but sadly this hit and display and words from Marino have taken over. And Hodge, you said it, man. Touchdown Atlantic was supposed to be a celebration of the CFL and Rider Nation coming out here and adding to the event what they do in terms of 
how hyped that fan base gets, and it's going to loom over it. You can already tell that it is. You know, the Riders are trying to put it behind them. I believe that's why the statement came out when it did before the Riders get to Halifax. But in my mind, it's going to hang over, hopefully not for too long, but over the weekend, over this team for a while, until Marino addresses it publicly with his face, not behind words. Absolutely. It's it's a convoluted, absolute mess of a situation, and I don't think this is the last time, unfortunately, we'll be discussing it in one way or another. The Montreal Alouettes, by the way, this is a huge piece of news. This feels like it happened 10 years ago. The Montreal Alouettes <laughs> fired head coach Gahari Jones and defensive coordinator Baron Miles, replacing them with general manager Danny Machocha and Noel Thorpe, respectively. Was the firing warranted? And will it help the Owls win games this season? To me, I, I think the answer to both of those questions, at least at this stage of the season, was no. I think we all knew going in to 2022 that Kahari Jones, unless he ran the table, was not coming out of that bye week with a job, right? There was going to be a change made because he was not the person that Danny Machocha selected. He was not his guy. And you know, that's okay. If you want your guy in place, fire him in the offseason to me because there was no way he was coming in to this season and he was escaping it with a job. We knew it was coming on that bye week, and sure enough, it happened. To me, that's not fair to Kahari Jones. It's not fair to the performance that they put on the field, which they could have easily been a two and two football team had one David Cote kick gone correctly as it should have been. And then they're leading the East division, right? That, that could very well have been the scenario for the Alouettes and, and a coach who's able to get that from his team does not deserve to be fired after four weeks. That's exactly what happened. And I frankly don't think it's going to help the Alouettes going forward either. Although I have a great deal of respect for Daniel Machocha, obviously a Grey Cup winner, a Vanier Cup winner. That's a tough situation because there are people in that locker room who love Kahari Jones, right? They went to battle for him. He was known as a player's coach. Now you've, fired him largely without merit mid-season, and you're going to come in and take over. Now, Machocha has his own faction in that locker room as well. It just seems like a team divided for me, and a team divided can't win. It was a team that Machocha divided himself, let's just say it. And I have respect for Mr. Machocha. I've covered him throughout a bunch of his career at the University of Montreal. He was there for his Vanier Cup win, but he divided this team with what he did in the offseason in terms of setting up the coaching staff to be ready for him. We've talked about it on the pod a way long time ago. He made Jones fire Robert Flash Gordon as his receivers coach coming off a year in which arguably Geno Lewis was the best receiver in the entire league. And Jake Weineke was up there as well and catching a bunch of touchdowns and they had a great receiving court. Made no sense at the time, but that's when you started to see what was going to happen. And that Machocha, in my mind, is the reason this team has started slowly. I don't care if he's going to like these comments or not. It's the facts. He divided the locker room. He started bringing in a bunch of French-Canadian players to set it up for himself, which is all fine, well, and good. But now the results of this team are going to be tied to Machocha. And I love the, <laughs> what should we say, antics of Gary Stern on his Twitter account. 
But Mr. Stern, I wonder if you actually know what is going on with your football team, because you said on Twitter, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, that you felt like Jones gave his heart and soul to the team. But Montreal never had a shot to start the season because of the way Machocha divided not only the locker room, but the coaching staff. There's coaches on that staff that were essentially spies for Machocha. And if you're a head coach or anybody in any job anywhere, how are you going to feel comfortable being put in that situation? To me, Jones has proven that he can be a leader of men. He can be a head coach. He came into a difficult situation in 2019 after Mike Sherman was fired during training camp and took that team to the playoffs for the first time in a long time after the Jim Pop era finally came to an end. So there's a team sitting out there that's going to feel really lucky to get Jones as a coach or potentially a head coach. I really hope he gets another opportunity and a long run to show what he can do because this Alouette's team, I think, had the makings of a group if it was actually his decisions that were running the show to be intriguing. So to me, this is going to be a lost season. That's how Machocha is going to sell it to Mr. Stern. But Stern better start to get in there a little bit and understand what's going on with his team because we've been saying it for months, guys. And his Twitter comments don't necessarily reflect that he quite understands what happened there and the power struggle that was going on behind the scenes. And everybody knew, as JC said, that this was going to happen unless they were 3-1 and one or 4-0 oh, heading into their bye week. So I just can't understand why you even go into the season with Jones. Mr. Machoch, if you want to coach, why not just start the season coaching or bring in the coach that you wanted to coach this team to at least not waste a season in Montreal for the fans that you want to come back out and support that team. Yeah, not going into the the season with the coach you actually want seems like a ma stake to me. And that I found that very confusing. <laughs> Um, the interesting thing I found, like like the reason that that Machocha seemed to cite for the firing of uh, Mr. Mr. Jones was a lack of discipline. So I ran the numbers. Montreal Alouettes through their games this season have averaged 7.25 penalties a game and 68.75 penalty yards per game. Uh, those both rank fifth in the CFL. Uh, I'm not suggesting that's good, but if you're fifth in a nine-team league, that to me says you're pretty you're pretty well average um again i'm not defending all the penalties that montreal took i agree that montreal looked a little bit disorganized at times took a few too many penalties this year but at the end of the day if you're the fifth most most penalized team you know that doesn't reflect great on the head coach but i also think you could do a heck of a lot worse so that reason to me seemed not ridiculous but let's say a little bit dubious certainly did to me as well and and the thing i don't buy is Machocha saying, no, I'm taking over this team just for this season. I'm not going to be coach next year in 2023, because if you were, if that was your goal, why would you go into the situation this season, knowing you were going to fire Kahari Jones after four weeks without another backup plan as head coach to me, that clearly indicates that he wanted at least this brief shot at what's what was once his dream job to be head coach of the Alouettes. And if he has success, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Danny Machocha continues in the head job next year. 
But Joe is a smart man. He knows how to politic behind the scenes. It's clearly worked for him at the CFL and even the U sports level. So as JC said, he set this team up for him to be able to come in there and coach. And ideally, if it goes well in his mind, you could see him on the sidelines for a while. He would ultimately like to be the guy making the decisions in game and also as a general manager, and he's going to have the chance for the rest of the season. So the floor is yours. But if it goes wrong, then Stern at least has to ask some questions, right? He's been active on Twitter. I hope he's as active as diving into this Alouette's team after the season. Now, we're not necessarily sure what's going to happen, but what if the Alouette's end up being worse ranked in penalties <laughs> than where they are now, right? Is Machoji going to point the finger at himself? And it was clear to me, guys, that he wanted to be on the sideline in that Toronto game because he was down there. That's when I felt like, all right, this is going to happen imminently. And you could see that that was the main reason for the switch from Vernon Adams Jr. to Trevor Harris in that game, who was the pocket passer that Machocha likes, going back to his Ricky Ray days. And oh, by the way, when Jason Moss was in Edmonton with him as well, who could certainly be atop that head coaching list if Machocha does not stay on the sidelines. But they didn't really give Adams Jr. a chance in that game. It was a little bit of a slow start. It wasn't awful. But it also wasn't setting the world on fire. It was kind of a normal start where quarterbacks feel out the game and then all of a sudden he's on the bench. I don't think that was fair to Adams Jr. as much as we've criticized him and others trade rumors surrounding Vernon Adams Jr. as well. So you could see in the offseason, Machocha was clearly setting up the staff, the team to come in there and coach and try to give himself a bit of a freebie season, as JC alluded to, to see how well he can do as the head coach and GM. The Edmonton Elks have traded Nick Arbuckle to the Ottawa Red Blacks in exchange for a fourth-round pick, ending months of speculation and reporting that Chris Jones never wanted the journeyman quarterback to begin with. What do you guys make of the trade? Chris Jones said that he wasn't trying to trade him during the offseason. Do we believe him? No. We said it the whole time on the website he had been trying to get rid of him because he really wanted JT Baird to start for the team, but then he suffered that off-season injury and wasn't there. So this was inevitable. He wanted to get something of value for Arbuckle. I was surprised to even see him start the season, to be honest, even though he said it was a tight race with Trey Ford and training camp and that Arbuckle just won out. I think it was actually smart in a way to give Ford some time to learn a little bit and at least go on a road trip or two and see what it was like before he took the reins in Hamilton. But this was coming. It was just a matter of time. The more intriguing part for me, guys, is Paul Lapelise gets the quarterback back that he chose against and wanted Matt Nichols in the nation's capital instead of Arbuckle. Now he turns to him, potentially trying to save his job there. I'm excited for this marriage, though. It, it was, I think they married for love the first time, right? When it was Arbuckle <laughs> and Lapo. This time it's more of like a tax reasons kind of thing. You know, it's maybe not, it's, it, it's, it's more of citizenship. A, yeah, it's an arranged marriage kind of thing, you know, with Arbuckle coming in. But I'm still excited for it because I think that when Paul Apolis's offenses have been at their best, it's been because he is the best schemer and play caller in the CFL, and other people have stocked the shelves, so to speak, with good quality ingredients. I'm not necessarily convinced that Paul Apolis is the best uh, assessor of talent. 
I think that he's at his best when he focuses on making the most of what he's got. And I think that Jeremiah Masoli showed well early on in the season. Yes, they, they struggled in the red zone from time to time. They had some clock management issues, but I still think that Nick Arbuckle can be an effective CFL quarterback. And I think he can be effective in Paul Apolis' system. To be honest, I felt a little bit robbed when he didn't get to see that back in 2020 with the cancellation of the CFL season. I'm excited to see it in 2022. It's two years late, but I'm still excited to see it. Yeah, certainly you think that Nick Arbuckle can come in and sort of play that Matt Nichols-esque role back when he was with the Bombers, be a distributor of the football if he can take care of it a little bit better than he has in Edmonton. I don't think necessarily all of those turnovers have been his fault, especially given some of the score lines he's been dealing with as of late, he can have success in Ottawa. And for them, bringing him in means they're right back in the hunt in in the CFL's East Division because I don't think they can get over that hump with Caleb Evans at quarterback, not from what we saw last year. He's, He's a dynamic dual threat, but I don't know if he has necessarily the arm talent to be an elite quarterback in the CFL. And he's still quite young, still in need of development. Nick Arbuckle's a little bit older. I think he can steady the ship. He can take over. And in this East division, that's completely up for grabs. I think he can have some success. I don't think anybody's hunting in the East division. Okay. It's more like that animal. (laughs) It's on the road, caught in the headlights and is trying to avoid getting run over by the West division teams enough to stay alive, to maybe beat on some of the East division opponents to make the playoffs. Nobody's hunting. Okay. This East division has been absolute trash to start the season outside of the red blacks back to back games with the Winnipeg blue bombers, taking them to the wire. And we should say the Montreal Alouettes, taking Calgary right down to the end of the ball game at McMahon Stadium to start the season because the West has dominated. I know there's some people out there that were saying, oh, the East Division's going to be a lot better and they're going to be better than the West. No way. I never believed that for a second. And it's all fine. And we'll have opinions. We don't know what's going to work out. But the Red Blacks <laughs> potentially in contention in the East Division because it's been so terrible. Okay. Have they been awful? No, they played the two-time defending Grey Cup champs. It certainly will be intriguing to see what Arbuckle can do in Lapalise's offense. He spent that whole COVID year off studying it until Lapalise made the move to go with Nichols, which clearly didn't pay off. And Hodge, what you said is exactly right. Lapalise needs to focus on making the most of the pieces around him and stop putting his hands in the cookie jar, so to speak, are going out and picking the groceries that he wants, okay? Just make the soup, stay in the kitchen, let Sean Burke bring you the goods, and you can make that delicious soup that everybody wants to taste in Ottawa, just like you did in Winnipeg. To me, that's what he does best. That's what he needs to focus on, especially to save his job, because if the Red Blacks keep losing, the questions are going to be out there about Lapalise. He had that one year. They won, what, three games? We're the worst team in the league, arguably. I know you could argue that Edmonton was. And now he comes into another season with an overhauled offensive line, playmakers, a veteran quarterback. Yes, he got hurt. But now he's got another veteran quarterback in there. And oh, by the way, Caleb Evans looked pretty solid last year. And there were people behind the scenes that would tell you that LaPolice didn't really like Evans. I mean, what's not to like about a young guy like that Canadian-American or otherwise? So LaPolice needs to start producing wins or that seat is going to heat up quickly just like J.C. Abbott wrote about on the site. 
Canadian quarterback Trey Ford left Edmonton's Week 5 matchup with Calgary early following an apparent shoulder injury that will keep him out for approximately a month. Taylor Cornelius will start against Montreal on Thursday. Do you think Cornflake can show signs of improvement in his second CFL season? If given the choice between almost any of the young quarterbacks in the CFL, and by young quarterbacks, I'll throw you know Caleb Evans into that mix, uh, Trey Ford into that mix, um, you know, uh, Jake Mayer into that mix, a bunch of them, Nathan Rourke. I think the one I'm least high on is Taylor Cornelius. And that's not to say he's a bad quarterback or he'll never play well. To me, Taylor Cornelius does not move well enough. To me, Taylor Cornelius is not good enough when it comes to making decisions with the football. I think he has a much stronger arm than a lot of those other players. I'm just not convinced that the accuracy is necessarily there. So I'm excited to see what he can do with an entire off season, but that job was there wide open for the taking. You mentioned dunkster JT Barrett would have potentially been the starter there. He got hurt, didn't make it to camp. They got Trey Ford there. They had Nick Arbuckle, which as we said, Chris Jones did not want to start Nick Arbuckle. That job was open for the taking and he didn't even make the active roster to start the season. He's been on the one game injured list. So obviously they did not like what they saw in camp from Mr. Cornelius. I'm interested to see what he does with this opportunity. Again, I can't say I'm high on him, but I want to give him the benefit of the doubt going into his second season. We do often see players improve from year one to year two. I'm curious. I'm not holding my breath, but I'm curious. You touched on it there, Hodge. It's never, uh, you know, heartening as a fan to see your team go to what was essentially their fourth quarterback on the depth chart this early in the season. That doesn't indicate that the coaching staff had a tremendous amount of confidence in Taylor Cornelius. Now, his arm strength is off the charts. I, I don't think I've seen an arm as strong as his in the CFL since prime Bo Levi Mitchell. Like he has a legitimate cannon, and that's why he's continued to get pro football opportunities. But when it comes to protecting the football at no level that Taylor Cornelius has ever played, whether that be college or the XFL or the CFL, has he been able to control those interceptions, which is exactly that's part of the reason why Nick Arbuckle is out of town in Edmonton. It's why Dane Evans is on the hot seat in Hamilton, right? Taylor Cornelius is worse than any of them at turning over the football. He's got a cannon, but it's actually more of a Gatling gun because there's no accuracy <laughs> whatsoever when it comes to that. And that's not a good situation, especially in a league where you've got three downs and an incompletion can kill any drive, right? You don't have a second chance. You can't have an inaccurate quarterback. And for me, despite some of the flashes he showed last year, and I think he moves a little bit better than you give him credit for Hodge. Despite those flashes, I just have, don't have any confidence that when push comes to shove, especially late in games, he's going to be able to keep the football in his own hands and not the opposition. Talking to some people around the Elks heading into the season, Chris Jones was intrigued with Cornelius and what he could do, but I think then he became enamored with Trey Ford especially, and that's why Ford ended up starting over Cornelius. But there are the traits there, right? You mentioned it, the arm strength. I think he does move around and is more, more mobile than he's given credit for. And 
if he can just cut down on the turnovers, make some smarter decisions, then he could be the starter there for a little while with Ford out and really try to cement himself. We got to remember, guys, he was involved in a complete mess of an excuse for a football team last year in Edmonton, led by Brock Sunderland, the general manager, and Jamie Elizondo, the head coach, and Chris Preston, the president. That was a complete and utter terrible situation to come into as a rookie CFL quarterback. And there were spurts where he played well. So that makes me think he could be at least serviceable or keep the Elks competitive in Stephen McAdoo's scheme if he's picked up quickly. He's got playmakers around him. James Wilder Jr., Kenny Lawler, of course, just to name a couple. The offensive line certainly needs to play better. But to me, guys, the issue with this Elks team has been the defense. Chris Jones has cut starters almost every single week. There's a bunch of no-names there that nobody knows. They have Trey Watson in there from Montreal, who has shown that he can play at the CFL level, even though he's a bit more of a thumper in the middle than you might want in this modern style of football. But that defense has got to play better. Like There's so much focus on the quarterback pos- position, and it makes sense, obviously. But Jones needs to get that defense going. I would agree with that. And and obviously, given their record, there's there's a lot more wrong in Edmonton than just the quarterback position. Absolutely. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers lit up the BC Lions for 43 points after defensive back Marcus Sales called their offense vanilla. Are the Bombers now unquestionably the CFL's best team? You know, I, I think the BC Lions are better than what they showed last week. But I, the, the Bombers... I'm not yet ready to call them unquestionably the what? best team in the league. Come and the on. reason why is this? The reason why is this? Let me let me. Do I need to come down the floor and put some sense into you? <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Justin Dunk is upstairs in our Halifax apartment, and I am downstairs. But the I reason think an apartment, man, it's a beautiful house. It's a beautiful house. But my reasoning is this: Calgary is also undefeated. And entering into last week's game between Winnipeg and BC, right? We had two undefeated teams, and one of them looked better for the entire season. And that team was BC, right? They looked like the better team. That's why they were the betting favorites. That's why I picked them to win last week. And Winnipeg came in and proved that they were the better team on that particular evening. We have Calgary and Winnipeg playing each other this week. So until that game is done, I'm not making any definitive statements whatsoever on who the best team is in the CFL because of how wrong I was last week based on the data that I would choose and pick the BC Lions again with that same information. Right now, I'm picking the Bombers over the Stampeders without a doubt, but it would not shock me if Calgary goes in there and upsets the Bombers because they have that capability in, on any given game day to go in and put together a performance for Bo Levi Mitchell to go off. They've looked inconsistent at times this year, but they're still undefeated. And so I'm waiting one more week before I make any statements about who's the best team in the CFL. Fine. I won't come down and give you a nuggie and let's see if this works. All right. The Bombers heard the vanilla comment from sales and then they put them on ice, ice baby, because that was a performance that we have seen time and time again. Did you get the reference, Hodge? JC, you're maybe too young for that, I guess. Anyways, that was a performance that we've seen time and time again from Winnipeg during this two-time Grey Cup run that they've been on. And I think we'll continue to see, especially from Zach Kolaris, 
Is that right, Hodge? Did I get it right for once? That is how you pronounce his name. Yes, Kalaris. Kalaris. He rises to the occasion and so does this team. So I think that's why JC is a little hesitant because they haven't been dominant, but they know when to turn it up a notch. And we saw there, I would say, a game in BC with that defense being so disruptive, Willie Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat causing troubles. And to me, that was one critical element of the game that I don't think a lot of people talked about was how would Nathan Rourke be able to try to combat or throw around those guys, especially Willie Jefferson with with his basketball wingspan, like seven-foot wingspan that presents so many problems. You don't see dudes like that in the CFL on a week-to-week basis. So now he's gotten a little taste of what it's like to see Jackson live, which is totally different from when you're watching him with the cowboy clicker in the film room and going forward and reverse and saying, all right, yeah, I could probably throw it around him here. I could get it over this way. I could pump fake him. Totally different in real life because that wingspan is unbelievable. So that's why I still think until proven otherwise, and it could potentially be this week, the stamps are revved up to get him in Winnipeg. We got to remember, Jake Mayer was a rookie quarterback, took Winnipeg to the wire. Hodge, you were at that game just a year ago with Bo Levi Mitchell rounding into form and getting his swagger back. It'll be quite the tilt there in Winnipeg. When we do our power, right, power rankings are not standings, right? There's a difference. I don't care if a team is 0-5. If they look great in all their games, I'm still not going to put them at the bottom spot. Same goes for the top. The Bombers went into that game 4-0. They were the number two team on my power rankings behind BC, and I would go. I would not change that if I had the power to. Winnipeg was absolutely the better team. They put, And by the way, vanilla, let's just say, is the most underrated flavor ever. I think people think vanilla is boring. Vanilla is delicious. Vanilla is outstanding. Let's let's get this garbage hate for vanilla ice cream out of here. Uh, but my point is the Winnipeg Blue Bombers could easily have been two and two going to Vancouver. They had basically the same strength of schedule. Maybe I think a little stronger, but not much than BC. And, and they easily could have dropped a couple of those games. They barely squeaked by Toronto, a game that should have gone to overtime, and they got outplayed week one against Ottawa. So I am comfortable putting Winnipeg in that top spot. Now, ahead of this week, I, I don't think I would have done it, but that's just me. Boys, we should move on to Hodges' Heritage Moment. I know y'all missed this segment because you didn't do the branding on it. It's Hodges' Heritage Moment. It's like paid ad spot. You got to give it. Okay, on this day in 2017, Martise Jackson of the Toronto Argonauts returned to kick off 109 yards for a touchdown against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers at IG Field. It marked the second kickoff return touchdown of the game, which should have resulted in Karen Caldas of Winnipeg winning Safeway's touchdown to win contest. Jackson's return was negated by a bogus illegal block penalty, however, preventing Caldas from claiming her $1 million prize. The incident went viral on social media with TSN's Milt Siegel famously exclaiming, what about Karen at halftime? Though she didn't get her $1 million prize, Caldas was given a prize package that included 2017 and 2018 Winnipeg Blue Bomber season tickets, free groceries for a year, 500,000 reward miles, and a VIP trip to the Great Cup. Not about you boys, but it's crazy to think she lost out on a million, but got free groceries for a year. Because right now, groceries for a year cost about a million dollars. That's actually not a bad consolation prize at all. <laughs> I can remember that night because the founder of the site, Drew Edwards, said at the time, you know, do you think we should write a piece about this? 
And that thing went off like unbelievably. And part of it was to do with Stiegel saying, what about Karen on the panel? That should have been the focus, man. But what a cool moment that it was for her. She was in the spotlight. She had her 15 minutes of fame, maybe even more. And credit the Bombers for stepping up in that situation. It's one of those moments that if you saw it live, you'll never forget it because there is the absolute elation of, wow, I've, I've seen this contest for basically my entire life and no one has ever won it. Here it was. It was about to happen. And then you see the flag on the field, the graphic pop up on the screen, and you just know that something absolutely devastating but incredibly iconic has just taken place. Imagine being Karen. <laughs> losing a million dollars that's a story she could take to the bank at any dinner party for the rest of her life still not quite worth a million bucks but yeah, okay. i was gonna say if the choice is impressive people at dinner parties for a <laughs> yeah. million dollars that's not a question for me but yeah, we're all different <laughs> let's get to the three minute drill fellas cfl sack leader pete robertson will miss the next four to five weeks following a late hit from red Lax offensive lineman dino board boy will the riders miss him I think they will, but there's also somebody named Charleston Hughes, if I remember correctly, who could step seamlessly into that starting role. The BC Lions are inducting Paul McCollum and Jovan Olafioye into the team's wall of fame. Are those worthy candidates? I can't think of two more worthy candidates. Paul McCallum, of course, one of the greatest kickers in CFL history, a guy who who came through the Surrey Rams uh, in my local community and did great things in, in that regard. And then Javon Alafoyoye, as a, a young offensive lineman growing up in BC, he was you know, the creme de la creme, the premier guy. He was so dominant for so many years there, really deserving uh, inductees to the Wall of Fame here. The Hamilton Tiger Cats signed former NFL and Saskatchewan Rough Riders punter John Ryan this week. Do you think he still has some leg left at 40 years old? Hell yeah, he does. He was booming him with the Rough Riders, and he could sure help out the Ticats. Legendary CFL quarterback Anthony Calville will handle Montreal's play-calling duties. Do you think he's up to the task? We'll see. I I generally seem to, to be of the opinion that being an excellent player and an excellent coach are two different things. Some people can do both. Those people are exceptionally rare. The Alouettes signed veteran CFL linebacker Micah Awe. Will he help them win games? I think he will. I think he's a guy who can step into that lineup right away, but apparently the Montreal Alouettes don't think so because this week they've announced the starters going to be this year's first overall draft pick, Tyrell Richards, in the middle. That should be interesting to watch. Canadian NFL running back Chuba Hubbard hosted a free football camp in Edmonton this week and has plans to expand it across Canada in the future. How cool is that, guys? It's really cool to see Hubbard come back to Canada and want to expand his reach. And you can tell based on Hubbard's quotes and Avery Lewis McDougall, who was at the camp for us, the reaction from the kids, it was just really unique. And for him to put it on for free, just a great, great tribute to the character of Hubbard. Matt Nichols told 630 Ched Radio in Edmonton, quote, I'm done playing football, close quote. How will you remember Nichols' career? I'm going to remember Nichols' career fondly. I thought Matt Nichols was always a better quarterback than people gave him credit for. I'm not suggesting he was an elite, you know, top of the league kind of guy, but I think that the game manager label was held against him 
a little bit too much. Matt Nichols had some amazing games. His best one, unfortunately, was a loss. That would have been the West Semi, and I believe it was 2017 when Winnipeg had a big... I think he threw for 350 yards and, and a couple touchdowns to, John, to Ryan Smith. The Ticats released former third-round pick Malik Irons. Was that a surprise? From the way they've designed their roster this year, I don't think it was a surprise. Malik Irons was getting pushed out a little bit, but he's certainly a talented player who I think could help some other football teams around the league if they sign him. The New England Patriots traded Canadian receiver and former first-round NFL draft pick Nikhil Harry to the Chicago Bears this week for a 2024 seventh-round pick. Not this year, next year's seventh-round pick, just to be clear. Will he be able to get his career back on track in Chi-Town? Man, even though I liked him coming out in the draft, I think he was way overdrafted and just put in a bit of a tricky situation with Bill Belichick. So hopefully getting away from Belichick can maybe help him flourish with the Bears. We'll see. The Alouettes win will honor the 2002 breakup champions on Thursday at Percival Molson Stadium. What do you most remember about that team? The thing I most remember about that team is they actually won a great cup. The Alouettes had so many amazing teams in the early 2000s. They made it, it seemed like, every year to the great cup. I think they went to five and seven years. This is the one that they won. It was an outstanding game against Edmonton. The team's been in two more great cups over the next three years. Edmonton won them both. Last one, the Lions signed right tackle Kent Perkins through 2024. Is that a good move? I think it's an excellent move for a couple of reasons. First of all, you're putting it on this year's cap, which BC has plenty of space to do so. But also Kent Perkins is a young player, a promising tackle. I've been critical of some of his play in the past, but he has a lot of promise. And right now, I don't think enough people realize how few talented offensive linemen are available out there on the open market. If you have a guy who can play at that level, you need to lock him down. And that's it for this edition of the Three Down Nation podcast with myself and JC Abbott in Halifax for Touchdown Atlantic. Of course, Mr. John Hodge is in Winnipeg. He'll be at that showdown of the undefeateds at IG Field between the Stamps and the Blue Bombers. JC and I will have tons of coverage from out east, including some intriguing interviews coming up about possible expansion out east we'll dig into the details there so stay tuned to threedownnation.com as always for all the latest goods around the cfl enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at betmgm sign up using code champion and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with betmgm you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features live betting options and the best daily promotions in the business and with betmgm at your fingertips every play and every game matters more than ever remember to use code champion and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotion promotional offer not available in washington dc 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.